Tom Sumner program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hail to the chief, he's the chief, and he needs hailing. He is the chief, so everybody hail like crazy. Hail to that's more or less. Hail to the chief, if you don't, I'll have to kill you. I am the chief, so you better watch your step. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is uh, the author of um, a new book called We the Presidents, How American Presidents Shaped the Last Century. But it's a little different look at presidents than what you might typically expect from uh, uh tech executive uh, turned author Ron Gruner, who joins me by phone. Hi, Ron. Welcome to the show. Uh, good morning, Tom, and uh, thanks for the invitation. Glad to be here. <laughs> I hope you don't mind that little intro. Uh, <laughs> with, no, that sounded fine to me. With Jack Lemon and uh, James Garner. They did a movie as uh, two former presidents that ended up being chased around the country by spies. They were on the road together. Very funny movie. Um, what was the name of that? I'll have to look for that. Yeah, it... Uh, boy, let me... I, the name just escapes me. Um, well, maybe it'll come well, to me while we're talking, but you can certainly find it, Jack Lemon and James Garner, uh, in a movie about uh, two former presidents. And that that little snippet that we heard was uh, um, they had admitted to each other that they had both written lyrics to <laughs> Hail to the Chief, and they were sharing them with each other. But, okay. Uh, but very, very funny movie in... Uh, and and if you do find the movie and watch it, and I, I know you'll enjoy it, um, keep an eye out for the bathroom scene. It It is hilarious, and, and I, I still laugh. Um, there's a guy who goes into the bathroom, and, and he walks up to a urinal, and he looks to the left of him, and it's a former president. And <laughs> so he turns to yeah. the right to tell the guy, hey, there's a former president, and it's another former president. <laughs> and, anyway, it, it, and that's not even a spoiler alert. It will still be funny when you see it. Um, anyway, okay, I look forward to that. Anyway, um, this is a, a, a presidential um, history that looks at each president from Harding through Trump. And um, 
Why, why Harding? Why started Harding? Well, I think uh, there were several reasons. Uh, part of it was just simply arbitrary. I thought I wanted to go back in time and, and look how presidents in the past have affected uh, Americans today, uh, which is really the kind of the, the primary theme of the book. And uh, going back a century seemed like a good number, but I think more importantly, Harding was in some respects, and Coolidge after him, the first modern president, because that was a period when uh, America was changing significantly, including technology. Automobiles, radio, aviation were all coming of age in the 1920s. And it was Harding and Coolidge uh, that really uh, were part of that all, the overall transformation uh, of the American economy and, and America itself, starting about, um, about a century ago. But there's also, coincidentally, I didn't realize it when I made the decision to start with Harding, but there's a, a number of similarities between uh, Warren G. Harding and, and uh and Donald, uh, Donald Trump, who the, who the book ends with. Um, one of those is uh, Harding was the first president to campaign on the slogan of America First. Uh, and that had been used briefly by Woodrow Wilson in, in uh, 1916 to try to keep uh, the United States out of the First World War. But uh, Harding made that a campaign slogan and part of the theme of his presidency to basically bring America back uh, 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 away from the relationships that had developed during World War II one, uh, and in Europe, and, and make it more of an isolated country. And that was the notion of America First. And, of course, Donald Trump has done the same thing with his program of America First and, uh, um, and to make America great. So there's a coincidence there that just happened to work out. And uh, I think it's been a good start in terms of looking at who has affected America uh, starting uh, about 100 years ago. And, and every book has to end somewhere, but in this particular book, it it sort of wraps up with the January 6th insurrection, which was, of course, a year ago today. Um, was that by design or just because that's where you were when you finished the book? No, that wasn't by design. I mean, I had made the decision to to write about the 17 presidents over the last century, uh, starting from Harding and ending with Trump. I made that decision several years ago. And uh, when I did, I had no idea how the book would end. And, of course, uh, as I was finishing the Trump chapter um, uh, early in 2021, um, you know, in the, in the February and March time frame, uh, that the insurrection or the, the, uh, the siege on the Capitol uh, was a major topic. And, of course, that was appropriate to end with that because that was really the last major ap uh, aspect of, uh, you know, Donald Trump's presidency. And I want to ask something about uh, about presidents because your book looks at, at it, it. It's really almost three different books in one book. I mean, it's a history of the presidents, but it also looks at uh, uh, American history and and um, economics history um, from Adam Smith to modern monetary theory. But I want to talk about how much impact presidents or the presidency really has on some of those things. I remember uh, in, the, in the period going from Barack Obama to uh, Donald Trump, this, this big debate over whether or not the president could control gas prices. And there were people who thought he could and people who thought he couldn't. And, and then, of course, you know, your book ends on 
January 6, 2021, with the uh, insurrection at the Capitol. And a great many people think that that Trump had a lot to do with that. How much can a president really influence people's behavior and and monetary trends, gas prices, the supply chain? What did you? Find? Well, I think uh, I, I think they can have a, a quite a bit of influence. Actually, um, the uh, sometimes it takes longer to realize what that influence actually was than at the current time. And that's why, you know, historians tend to look at presidents after several decades when kind of the emotions washed away and, and the facts and the, and the core history remains. But uh, talking about taxation, for example, I mean, that's a topic that's uh, discussed in virtually every presidential election and during the administrations of the presidencies. And uh, much of the taxation policies uh, we discuss and debate today go way back to uh, Warren G. Harding and Calvin Coolidge. Uh, Harding uh, brought in as his uh, Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon. Andrew Mellon at the time was the third uh, wealthiest person in the United States. He was a self-made multimillionaire uh, in mining. And he uh, wrote a book called uh, Taxation, the People's Business. And what that advocated at the time was revolutionary. The idea was that by reducing tax rates, you could actually increase tax revenues and grow the economy. Now, today we call that supply-side economics, but he called that scientific taxation in the early 1920s, and it changed the policies of uh, the federal government in terms of how it viewed taxation immediately in the 1920s, and some attribute the, the, the strong growth uh, of the Roaring Twenties to uh, Andrew Mellon's taxation policy. So that's an example where there's an immediate impact a hundred years ago um, by uh, by one person that happened to work for Warren G. Harding, and then he followed on with uh, uh, Calvin Coolidge and also Herbert Hoover. But to take kind of the flip side of that coin, uh, Mellon uh, continued his uh, taxation policies through the uh, uh, Depression under Herbert Hoover, and his overall financial policies failed miserably in the 1931-1932 time frame, and it was very apparent they were failing, and Herbert moved Andrew Mellon out from the Treasury role and shipped him over to England as ambassador to the UK. Uh, so that's an example, Tom, of uh, how something even 100 years ago was very evident uh, that the policies of the president and his uh, cabinet had a very immediate effect uh, on the American economy. And, uh, you know, we see that today. Uh, if we go back to uh, the, uh, say, the uh, import policies of you know, former President Trump, uh, by raising tariffs that had uh, good and bad aspects, it protected to some extent the steel and the aluminum industry, and their employment went up uh, within within a year. But employment went down in other sectors of the manufacturing economy because the goods that rely on aluminum and steel went up in price because those prices went up and their volumes went down and they lost manufacturing in other industries. So uh, they do have an effect, definitely. And and how how immediate? I mean, as you look at this uh, at this one hundred years through, uh, uh, well, with with twenty twenty, and I don't want that mistaken with the year twenty twenty. Um, yeah. But but with twenty twenty hindsight, I I've always been under the impression that the economic policies of one president benefit or hurt the next president, because they don't kick in immediately. 
Oh, that is absolutely true. I mean, uh, let's take an example between uh, uh, President Carter and Ronald Reagan. Uh, one of the things Carter did, I think, uh, to his credit, uh, late in his presidency, is he fired Arthur Burns as the federal chair, uh, the Fed chairman, uh, and hired um, Paul Volcker to run the Fed. And Volcker believed that the major issue the United States was dealing with in the, in the stagnation of the 1970s was high inflation, not high employment. And so he took on killing inflation. He did that by restricting the money supply and raising uh, raising interest rates tremendously. For those of us old enough to know, we know that mortgages got as high as 17 or 18 percent in the late 70s and early 80s. But he did break inflation's back, and by 1982 or 83, inflation had declined from uh, 14 to 15 percent uh, four years earlier, down to about three percent, and that caused a tremendous boom in the economy in the 1980s. And uh, Ronald Reagan rode that wave. I mean, he uh, he had economic <laughs> policies of cutting taxes, but he frankly rode the wave that Paul Volcker created by killing inflation. Well, and and that's why I wanted that, and that is such a great example, um, Ron, and and I, I, that that really lays out what I what I was thinking and the impression that I've had. You know, people people say that you know a, a president's policies aren't working well very often they're not working yet well that's that's correct it takes uh like i said earlier sometimes it's immediately clear within a two two or three years but other times it takes uh longer to see the impact uh, you know i might comment that one aspect um that uh, wasn't quite as positive by any means was uh, Dwight Eisenhower's policy of using uh, the CIA for covert operations. Uh, um, before there were covert operations, there were really only two forms a government could deal with uh, an antagonist, uh, either through diplomacy or war. But uh, what was uh, Eisenhower had been very successful using the OSS for covert operations against the Germans in World War II. So he used the CIA in 1953 to overturn a. a, a, a legitimate democratic election in Iran to replace uh, the democratically elected uh, prime minister with uh, basically an American puppet. Uh, this is well understood now. And that at the time seemed to be very successful. And so for the next 50 years, uh, the United States government used the CIA in covert operations, oftentimes in the Middle East, was th oftentimes was that, not working well. Ron, was that the Shah? Yes, that was. The Shah was put in power in 1953 by Winston Churchill and uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower because basically uh, British Petroleum wanted to negotiate with Persian oil in Iran. To uh, Iran wanted to negotiate higher profits, and British said they would not. The British said they would not do that. Iran nationalized the, the British oil company, and at that point, they wanted to kick out and change the government. Uh, they went to Truman at the end of Truman's presidency. Uh, the British did and asked him to help make that change, and Truman refused. Uh, Eisenhower, who had been a cohort of uh, Winston Churchill during the war, uh, sure. said, we'll do that. This was, this was only six months into his presidency, and uh, arranged that, that coup in 1953. And that policy rippled down for decades in the United States. Ron, I have to take a break here. Can you stick around for a few minutes? This is fascinating. Of I would course. like to talk some more. Of course. I'd be happy to. The name of the book is We the Presidents, How American Presidents Shaped the Last Century by uh, Ronald Gruner. And um, we'll be back with Ron after we let our broadcast partner squeeze a few words in. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. We'll be right back. 
Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. Do you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative, whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just, um, attorney general stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So, listen... We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm 
Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. And welcome back, everybody. We're uh, talking with tech executive and author of a new book uh, called We the Presidents, How American Presidents Shaped the Last Century by Ronald Gruner. Ron, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. (laughs) Thank you. I enjoyed it. (laughs) Well, good. Um, We were talking uh, a little bit about how much uh, presidents can impact things in people's daily lives, um, gas prices and taxes and, and, and some of those things. But I want to ask, what got you interested in these subjects? What, what, were, what led up to you deciding to write this book? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, uh, Tom, it's my background primarily. Uh, I was born and raised in a small town in Oklahoma called Ponca City, and uh, I uh, moved to uh, Boston, Massachusetts uh, when I was 20, 21, to work in the computer business, and I spent 40 years in Massachusetts. As you know, uh, Oklahoma is one of the reddest of the red states, and Massachusetts is one of the bluest of the blue states. And uh, I have found my friends in Oklahoma and my friends in Massachusetts uh, oftentimes basically dislike each other uh, for their politics. And uh, that really distressed me. And uh, too many conversations living here in Naples now – uh, over drinks or uh, after golf or whatever, quickly you know devolve into politics and sometimes get a little nasty. And my background is an engineer. I really like to try to think I deal with facts and not ideology and opinions. And so I felt maybe I could contribute something by writing a book that, uh, which we the presidents uh, does, never mentions the words uh, Democrat, Republican, left or right, liberal or conservative. I mean those words, other than in a few quotes are never used in the book. I try to discuss uh, uh, issues and facts and be as objective as uh, possible and and let the reader form his or her own opinion rather rather than trying to feed them an opinion that's got an ideology base. That was my motivation. Did you form any conclusions about cause and effect from uh, one side of the aisle or the other as you looked at the presidents and their various policies and how they impacted these uh, these other things in the world of, of business and economics? Well, uh, I did. I mean, one example, uh, an insight I had, it wasn't that profound actually, but it was an insight for me, is that uh, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on the book on economics and economic policy. And you hear a lot of debate uh, uh among various groups about demand-side economics, supply-side economics, uh, monetary policy, and you have groups advocating for each of those particular perspectives. Uh, and there's think tanks that are paid to advocate for those, those positions. And my realization is that all of those ideas are good at times, but there's no universal solution. You simply can't say that, for example, supply-side economics is the final and perfect economic theory. It works at times, and other times it doesn't. Other times, monetary policy is far more important. So that was an insight that sounds kind of trivial, but it's an insight I had writing this book. And uh, that applies to, I think, even international policy. There may be times where an isolationist policy may make sense, but there's many times where it doesn't. And you can't say absolutely 
these policies are the only policy and the only policy that works. And that's too much today is what we see in America. People have taken positions uh, that have been useful at times but may not be universal solutions. I'm not sure exactly how to set this question up, but I'll do the best I can, Brian. Did you get the impression as you were researching and putting together the material in this book that um, that that presidents came to the White House with an agenda and whether they were successful or not depended on timing or did you get the sense that by and large these were professional administrators who relied on experts uh, to develop policy successful or not well that's um, kind of related to the question you know, are, are presidents uh are the administrations a function of the man or the or or, or the times? And uh, yeah, um, so and and both have an impact. I mean, I consider Harry Truman one of the great presidents, and uh, he his administration was in some of the most challenging and transitional times, uh, surely in the last one hundred years after the end of World War II and and the advent of the Cold War. Uh, and in many respects, uh, the way he handled those times made the presidency. But you mentioned uh, his advisors in the cabinet. And yes, that certainly plays a role uh, in terms of uh, uh, how effective the president is. I've already mentioned Harding. I don't want to over over focus uh, Warren G. Harding, but his yeah, well, it's hard not to think really, of the the discussion we had in the last segment about uh, Mellon and and his role. Yeah, well, that's, I was just going to say his presidency was really defined by the two people he brought in, Mellon and Hoover. Um, and so that's that's an example uh, there, uh, how how that was really defined by somebody he brought in after he was president. I don't believe he had those ideas when he ran um, in 1920. The how much impact does divisiveness and and uh, um, the log jam that we we see so much in Washington have on whether or not um, the the country can grow and be successful oh that's a really good question and uh, looking at the politics over the last uh, well, the last 10 to 12 years uh, it's not encouraging, but well, frankly, it's not new. I mean, even well, somebody but we haven't had up, an honest to goodness budget in decades. That's correct. Yep, it's very dysfunctional, and it has been uh, since, since really the uh, you know the, the late nineteen nineties, which is a shame. But uh, we had uh, dysfunctional times uh, to a much less extent during the Roosevelt administrations and even Eisenhower. I mean, as Eisenhower was promoting things like the interstate highway system, he was broadly condemned as being a socialist. That was very controversial at the time. It's hard to believe now, but it was. And uh, he only got that through Congress by basically changing the, repositioning the interstate highway system as a means of defending the nation in the event of a nuclear attack. That's basically how, the, and they changed the name of the interstate highway system to uh, the American Defense Highway System or something along those lines. So, what we're going through now, I'd like to think, uh, is uh, is difficult, but it's not totally unique. And I'm very hopeful we'll get through this time. You know, this being the anniversary of the January 6th ins insurrection, your book ended on that. Um, 
how do, how do you look back at that event now that the book is out and and what you were able to put together about that event for your book now that it's a year later do you have any different observations that you weren't able to include in the book with this little bit of hindsight uh you know this the uh congressional investigation that's going on now i've of course been tracking that closely and as more and more evidence uh, appears to be coming out that's correct, that um, unfortunately the Trump administration was involved in the planning and organizing of that more than people realized. But you know, I write pretty extensively in my book about uh, President uh, Trump's um, uh, efforts starting in really in, in May of uh, uh, 2020, uh, commenting about the fact that the election was going to be rigged, uh, mail-in voting was going to be uh, rigged and he was going to lose because the election was rigged and in August he was telling rally groups that uh, I'm going to lose the election keep in mind that it was rigged and it, it was an unfair election and even in September of 2020 the Washington Post had uh, a major article stating that Trump is positioning his base to believe the election was lost because it was uh, fraud and to resist it and that was a Washington Post story as early as uh, September 2020 uh, so uh, I am not a political scientist. I really can't comment much more than that, Tom, but it's uh, it's a shame that what we're going through, that a large percentage of the country doesn't believe that uh, President Biden is a legitimate president. We've never distrusted our elect electoral system to the extent that we do today, and I, I think that's a shame, and I'm, I'm hopeful we're going to recover for that uh, stronger nation. But it may take a decade to change the laws, and that's that's often the case. Right, as, as we were... Uh talking earlier about like for example economic policy one president comes up with uh, or takes some action but it doesn't it, it isn't really fully realized sometimes until the next administration um, and and we may see that with some of the efforts and and I think Joe Biden is is very sincerely trying to tamp down the the rhetoric and and the hate speak and and I, I don't know if he'll be successful during his term but maybe that'll be one of those things that eventually you know rolls in and and the next administration may benefit from um as you were writing this book um did you have some points that you wanted to make and did you discover some points along the way that sort of presented themselves? Well, I, I tried to start the book uh, without an agenda. Um, I mean, the, the book went through several uh, evolutions. It originally started out largely as an economic test, text because uh, I was worried about the evolution of the national debt, uh, you know, starting uh, uh, 15 years ago, growing uh, very, very strongly. I mean, we were running a strong surplus at the end of the uh, 1990s, and that turned around a few years later. And so we started out with that, and then I evolved into a book more about the presidents and their overall impact. Um, but I, I, uh, I really tried to just research the facts, research the history, write that, and, and not try to develop an overall theme to the book. Uh, one of the reasons for that, Tom, is, I mean, this is the first book I've written. It's a uh, it's a book on presidents and presidents or administrations over 100 years, and I thought it was a little presumptuous for me at this stage 
to try to form opinions on that uh, rather than write the facts as I saw them and uh, and let people read that and form their own thoughts. It's largely what I've tried to do. Are th- what kind of reactions have you had to the book so far? What are people taking away from it? Well, I think it's generally been very positive. I've had some comments, though, that feel uh, that my position, uh, for example, let's talk about how I, in the, the Trump chapter, the last couple of paragraphs in the Trump chapter, you know, pose the question, well, how will history view uh, Donald Trump? Will he be viewed as a, a modern-day Andrew Jackson who represented the, the common and popular man? Or will he be viewed as somebody, as Newsweek said, who precipitated a cold civil war? And uh, the negative comments I've gotten, and they're not too many, is basically, well, Ron, I mean, you've done all this research. You should take a position on that. And uh, perhaps I should, but on the other hand, uh, I think history is going to sort that out, and I'll let people form their own thoughts. But I think I've laid the facts out as clearly as I could. And on the flip side of the coin, a lot of people have uh, read the book, uh, reviewers early, and said, I really like this approach. It's very refreshing. I'm tired of being told what to think, and I'm tired of the politics, and I'm really nice to read something that basically presents the ideas clearly and uh, treats me as an, an adult that can form my own thoughts. So I've heard both sides of that argument. <laughs> well, I think that's probably true of just about everything these days. Yeah. <laughs> Anything you bring up, you're going to hear both sides of uh, of, of an argument. Um, but... Uh, again, I'm I'm curious about as you were putting this all together because it it really is a very ambitious project, Ron. Uh, you know, to do a presidential hist- history, but but also the um, examination of economics and economic policy is um, is a lot to tackle, and so I I, I guess I'm wondering if. Um, the information that you put together that would help other people shape their thoughts. Um, did the material you collected shape yours? Oh, you know, very much. I mean, like I said I, early on, I started uh, looking at the, the, the issue uh, largely from an economic perspective, and uh, I actually went to the uh, Internal Revenue Service websites, and I downloaded the reports on the income tax filings uh, over the last 100 years and put that into a database. Uh, which took that took almost six months to do, and because m- many of those reports are not in any kind of computer readable format, and it showed to me the changes in income equality inequality how they've evolved over the last 100 years. So, <clears throat> during the 20s, uh, we all definitely migrated upward very strongly, and uh, that was something that Roosevelt talked about a lot. And then it migrated back down to the middle class and the lower uh, and lower income folks. Uh, all through the uh, 30s, 40s, and through even the late 60s. But starting about 1968, that changed again. And today we had the same degree of, let's call it income inequality, that we had in 1929, where wealth has floated up tremendously. I'll just give you one example I found that was, to me, really shocking. And that was, think of the year 1968. In 1968, the uh, minimum wage was, I forget exactly, but it's... uh, $20, $20 $20, equivalent was almost $12 uh, uh, an hour, although in reality it was like $1.50. Uh, a minimum wage family uh, of four people working full-time, a spouse working full-time and a second spouse working half-time, in $20, would be making about $32,000, $33,000. And that would put them in the lower middle class in 1968. Today, earning $7.25 
they're four thousand dollars below the poverty line. So the people working at the bottom of the income levels, minimum wage, today have ter- taken a thirty-seven percent pay cut since their income was at maximum in nineteen sixty-eight. Now, a family that was living off of a trust fund, living off dividends only in nineteen. 19- 68, their income today would be seven times higher than it was in 1968. So you've got two groups of people, somebody living off a trust fund, dividends, their value is seven times more than it was in 68, and somebody at the bottom of the scale working out at Walmart, for example, or McDonald's, they took a 37% pay cut. Um, That, to me, uh, was a profound insight, and that came from the database I put together from the Internal Revenue System. And taxes have gone down significantly over the last few decades. Um, Taxes are are much lower for certain brackets than they were back in that same period, 1968. Um, And isn't what's happening the exact reverse of what the people promoting the policies of, of tax cuts um, predicted would happen. And, and I'm thinking about Ronald Reagan and trickle down the ideas. If you cut taxes, businesses would be able to hang on to more of their money. They would reinvest that by hiring people, and it would have, uh, you know, this positive impact on uh, on the working class. But we didn't we didn't see that outcome. No, we did not, and uh, my book talks about that extensively in the Reagan chapter. <clears throat> Those tax cuts really had the, the primary impact is the national debt exploded uh, in the 1980s, and it, it's been exploding uh, almost ever since. Um, capital investment actually declined in the 80s after those deep tax cuts relative to the 60s and 70s. That's aston- That was astonishing to me when I did the analysis. So companies did not invest at the same level in the 80s after the tax cuts that they had been investing in the 60s and 70s. Income inequality increased significantly. It did not trickle down. It trickled up. And that's not opinion. That's hard fact, easily verifiable. Absolutely. And, and I remember that that was sort of at the heart of when um, George W. Bush, or not George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, was uh, running in the primary against Ronald Reagan. He ended up being his vice presidential uh, uh, candidate, but um, he called he called uh, Reagan's economic theories voodoo economics. That's right. That was when he was running uh, during the primaries. Right. Voodoo economics. And then, then when he became the uh, the vice president, he, <laughs> he kind of. Uh, Sheepishly said, well, I was just joking about that, <laughs> and uh, supported Reagan's policies. And then when he became president, as you know, uh, after saying, read my lips, no new taxes, he felt a need to increase taxes uh, because the national debt was exploding. And so he, I say in, my, uh, in that particular uh, Bush chapter that H.W. Uh, Bush could never quite make up his mind about taxation policies because he was on both sides of that coin over uh, like a 14-year period. Well, he was Absolutely, a true Republican yeah. who believed in, you know, smaller government and less taxes, but he was also a a pragmatist, and he understood that um, this this trickle-down theory was not working the way it was supposed to. That's correct. 
an interesting thing about uh, the uh, Bush tax increase is uh, very, very few people paid additional taxes after that tax increase because they not only increased taxes, but they raised the tax brackets significantly. So very few people fell into the brackets of the higher taxes. Only people in the top 20% of income levels uh, paid higher taxes during H.W. Uh, Bush's administration. It didn't affect the average person or the average voter, although they thought it did. Well, Ron, now that you've written this book, and again, the book is called We the Presidents, How American Presidents Shaped the Last Century. Um, do you have the bug? Is there a, another book in the works? Well, if I say yes, my wife's going to divorce me, so I probably <laughs> ought to keep quiet. <laughs> but, that makes it, but that makes it sound, Ron, like it might be on your mind a little bit. It is. I have an idea, but uh, it, it's just... Uh, just beginning to germinate. Um, it's a big project, but I have to say I enjoy, I've enjoyed the process uh, over the last four years, and uh, I suspect I'm going to miss it. Well, I, I think it's a, a fascinating book. Um, for people who didn't pick it up from what we were talking about, there are essentially three books embedded in the 600-page We the Presidents, a 200-page economics history from Adam Smith to modern mon monetary theory, and a 100-page American history from the French-Indian Wars to the January 6th insurrection, as well as a compelling 300-page presidential history from Harding to Trump. Um, there must have been tremendous overlap in all of those different ways. Were you able to keep them separate at all, or did they just uh, uh, go back and forth? Well, they kind of went back and forth. I tried to... Uh uh, bring in anecdotes and factoids, so to speak, that you know readers would find interesting. Uh, you know, for example, people Americans today are concerned about taxation, but Shays' Rebellion in uh, 1787 uh, was uh, an issue over taxation uh, that helped precipitate the Constitutional Convention and the formation of the United States as we know it today. And I thought that was an interesting story. Uh, and then how the Whiskey Rebellion uh, that George Washington was forced to almost put down uh, affected taxation policies for 150 years because they backed away from taxing persons, you know, only taxing import tariffs. And I thought that was background that curious readers would find interesting. So I try to put in uh, a lot of different uh, historical perspectives in that regard. Well, fold them into the book naturally. It's it's a, a great and and in many ways timely book. Ron, and I appreciate you spending this time with me and the listeners today to uh, talk about it. Again, the book is called We the Presidents, How American Presidents Shaped the Last Century by Ronald Gruner. Ron, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? Uh, the book's website is wethepresidents.us, wethepresidents.us. Uh, and there's a little bit about me and a little bit about the book and, and how to buy the book on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and Apple. Uh, so that would be uh, my recommendation. Well, Ron, thanks so much for spending this time with me and the listeners. And uh, Happy New Year and keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Tom, and thanks for the invitation. And Happy New Year to you and your listeners. All right, take care. Again, Ronald Gruner, author of 
We the Presidents, How American Presidents Shaped the Last Century. We're going to take a uh, short break and let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. There's more of the Tom Sumner Program straight ahead. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacle that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, 
table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. It's a major factor in dancing like a retard. It may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy. And it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! From the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. in every meeting that I've ever held. Thank you, sir. Then would you give me your frank appraisal of Mr. Nixon's chances in 1968? No. <laughs> Mr. Swayze. General, perhaps you'd rather talk about Mr. Goldwater. Well, you're getting into a question that we've been studying a long time. <laughs> now, in the last election, Senator Goldwater lost. Did he ever? <laughs> as to how many votes Senator Goldwater received. How many people actually voted for the Senate? I guess there was, what, 70? <laughs> 70 people. What would you think of Barry Goldwater running again in 1968? Oh, no, no. <laughs> General, since we're discussing personalities with you, we're aware that there's been a coolness between you and Mr. Truman through the years. During what period did Mr. Truman nettle you most? From 1945 until this minute. <laughs> Incidentally, General, are you aware that Mr. Truman is coming to town Sunday night? I'm leaving early uh, Monday. St. Now, Mr. President, I'd like to turn for a moment to another area. Do you think voting legislation should be handled on a local level or on a national level? Is that, <clears throat> that that is, uh, well, it's uh, difficult. Now, uh, let me make one thing clear. 
I think that, uh, so far as I know, I say this. Do you know what I think? This is a private matter for the uh, local authorities, or I mean a private, I mean the local, uh, for local, uh, uh, with local matter for local authorities, and that's all this I invented. I have stately, uh, flatly stated, again and again, get that, get that by all means, and get no more, get no more. Now that is all I can say in detail on that matter. you'd agree that the job of president of the United States has become probably the most demanding and responsible job in the world. I don't mind telling you. <laughs> Looking back now on your momentous eight years in office, can you think of anyone else who might have handled the job as well as you did? Anybody. Anybody. <laughs> Mr. President, it has been a pleasure having you with us today. Well, I know it has. Well, I believe it has, put it that way. Well, just as a point of information, you've conducted many high-level news conferences in your time. Who would you say has asked you the most ridiculous, absurd questions that you can recall? People like yourselves. One final question. If you were president and World War III were to begin, what would you do? I would certainly uh, not uh, publicize it. <laughs> This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
Alexander Zanjic, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. <laughs> 